0: The Geopolitics and Empire podcast is joined by Joaquin Flores, who publishes on geopolitics, war, and diplomacy. I very much uh, enjoy his work, which he also distributes through his Telegram channel, New Resistance. How are you, Joaquin, and how are things in
1: Europe at the moment? Well, you know, I'm doing well still so far. Uh, I I haven't been forced to do this, and, um, you know, the bombs are not falling exactly here yet. But one country over from the next, they are. So, you know, just keeping a low profile. Yeah. And I think, uh, w- um, yeah,
0: good Good that you're doing well. Um, so maybe to start, you know, I've been following your stuff for a long time. I, I very much uh, enjoy it and agree with you on a, on a lot of points. And maybe if you could just start by um, telling us a little bit about yourself, what you do and your interests.
1: Yeah. So my basic interest is uh, in geopolitics and looking at counter counter- Revolutions, revolutions, insurgency, counterinsurgency from a uh, mass movement perspective and uh, how mass movements are created, uh, how they can be manipulated. That's very connected to like this color revolution thing. Um, the information war component of fourth generation warfare is all in that. So people talk about hybrid warfare, net centric warfare, that kind of stuff. And, uh, and, also the uh the deeper i guess you would call them uh, social psychological mechanisms that are used in uh in social movements and uh and how uh grand strategy between the great powers the interplay of of reality and long term goals because those are like ideas about how you want things to be so that's not reality but all, everybody has goals so then there's an interplay between those and uh that's been Mostly, my focus for the past uh, decade here in um, the capital of Serbia, Belgrade, and um, a lot of activity here relating to that, and in this, you know, region of the world, so it's a, it's a good place to be for that. Yeah, I've been fascinated by color
0: revolutions. I wrote my my master's thesis was on color revolutions when I um, graduated from the Geneva School of Diplomacy, and uh, you were at one of the gr- ground zero for color revolutions in the year two thousand uh, when when they launched that whole thing uh, in in serbia to overthrow the government there um so I, th- I thought maybe we'd start with i i like to ask my guests you know what's top top of the list uh, on your mind right now you know i've got some topics such as obviously ukraine what's going on there um sure. but i, I kind of want to get like the, the your birds macro bird's eye view of you know, what are the biggest issues that, that you think are going on right now? These clash of empires, um, the shifting of, of of the systems, you know, the unipolar, multipolar. So, you know, what, what's on your mind right now?
1: Well, nobody can talk about anything if they are ignoring the Great Reset. So everything that, you know, all the rules that applied before still apply. Like, I mean, the bait, the fundamentals apply. But your projections and the things that you have to take into account when you're figuring out how you see things are going to evolve without a accounting and under deep understanding of the great reset, it's going to be uh, flawed. It's going to be very flawed. And, um, and that's, I, I write a lot about the great reset for the past couple of years. Uh, before that, of course, you know, there was a lot happening in the U S with the elections and uh, a lot of uh, public discontent around that it's a divisive issue um but you know i i did my best to to understand it from the point of view of what looked like maybe the majority of americans uh in that election and and then you know with with the great reset um I, what i've noticed about the internet if you can, <laughs> notice something about the internet uh is that it was it's, it there's many internets and uh people live in different internets and they become kind of like you know confirmation bias chambers and um and so what i noticed was that even though there were many strong uh, analytic tools to understand the great reset that were come from the historical left not the left today but the historical left uh really marks really Marx, to be frank. There's a lot of Marxian analysis that can be used to understand the Great Reset, especially because of the direct influence of Marx on the Great Reset thinkers themselves. I mean, so this is not about, I like Marx or you like Marx, but do you understand what they understand, right? And I understood that there was um, so much um, good analysis on the... uh, I want to say the monetary policy component of the of the great reset coming from let's say conservative libertarian i mean there's different views in this in on on what money is and how money works um, but the social psychological component uh as you know it, it was missing from that, and also the um idea that this was not simply a policy change, right? This is not simply, well, now the elites have so much power that they have the power to shift policy and to change money into, uh, let's say, social credit or, a, or, or, or coupons, you know, uh, but that um, actually there's some things in Marx that, that really give critical insight into the inevitability of this uh and which which gives you an understanding of why the elites are doing this now and uh and not before and not later you know why they're doing it now and um it relates very much to now of course like from the the point of view of of uh the subjective theory of value or you know some you know talking about theories of value, you know, where does value come? Why do you pay for things? Uh, subjective theory of value, I felt provided very good insights into why consumers pay for things and maybe what their motivations are and, you know, what was easy for them, why they just, Why two people decided to make an agreement and where that exchange comes from and where that value comes from and talking about marginal utility and other, other you know, ways of, of appraising value uh, where um, money and value are the same thing. Uh, and, um, and where you, know, you have in the, the Marxian point of view is actually almost the beginning of neoclassical in many ways. People say, well, you know, Marx was a classical economist because of his influence on, on him from you know, David Ricardo and Adam Smith. He kind of built off of that. But he does something very different in, this, in his synthesis, which you know, in, in a very strange way, There's not a tremendous contradiction in a lot of these things between, uh, you know, uh, Marx or Hayek. And, you know, there's not, you know, you can actually reconcile these. And there's a a sort of syncretism can be, you know, performed. And why? Because um, something happens with the truth is that it gets divided up and packeted away into little corners of our existence, you know, and if we can kind of tease them out and kind of show how these things fit together. And that's not simply an academic or intellectual exercise. This has practical ramifications because the greatest number of people are going to have to be united around some more basic ideas to fight this. And if we're stuck in left and right, conservative, liberal, Marxist, uh libertarian, if we're stuck in these categories and we think we're, you know, we're the winning side, ultimately the deep state is gonna have us organized into death squads, shooting each other. Because that happens as a fact. We, you know, you and I both know how this works. <laughs> and uh and Americans haven't seen that yet, uh, fortunately. And and you know, God willing, they won't. So that's really uh a lot of the focus with the great reset. What are the things from you know? what do the writers, what do Klaus Schwab think? What do they, you know, where do they take their ideas from Marx and what are the ideas they take from Marx that are not inessential? Cause there's inessential things that they're projecting their values onto the world that they want to see. But then there are the objective things uh, where, where ultimately money comes from. So, um, uh, That's, I think, a good, you know,
0: pivot or starting point. Yeah. A message from our sponsors. The Nomos app will help you survive COVID-1984 and the Great Reset. Nomos is a time bank that can be used by communities anywhere in the world. You just need to talk people into using it. For example, if you go to your barber for a 30-minute haircut, your barber receives 30 minutes in his time bank. He can then use that time to pay for an appointment with the doctor. I've spoken to the developer who is passionate about creating solutions for surviving and thriving in the apocalypse. Nomos is available in both English and Spanish. Hurry and visit nomos.net before they roll out the cashless society and put you in the algorithm ghetto. Also, if you need health insurance that covers you wherever you may roam, check out my friend James Guzman's borderless health insurance. One of the great things about living internationally is saving money on health care, but private care overseas can be expensive. Go to borderlesshealthinsurance.com to watch a short presentation on expat and digital nomad healthcare and sign up for a free consultation to review your options. Geopolitics and Empire needs funding. You can leave a donation, book a consultation, or become a member, which gets you access to my brief weekly commentary, a monthly newsletter of my thoughts, a private telegram, a monthly members group call, and my second premium broadcast called Dissident Thinker, where I conduct interviews and provide solo analysis. Dissident Thinker is also available on Rockfin and for supporters on Locals. Yeah, but for for me, like, and I'll get your thoughts on this. Like, It seems like COVID-1984, as I like to call it, was phase one. And what we're seeing now in Ukraine is is phase two, that they're directly connected. Actually, I was going to mention from the beginning, I have been saying that Covid is a Nazi, not Nazi eugenicist project because mm-hmm. um, we've seen. Um, if we look at history, a lot of the American eugenicists backed Hitler. We have you know the Rockefellers, IBM, and all of that. Today, who's you know who's writing the COVID policy reports? Rockefeller. Who's creating the digital past? IBM. So correct. So there's yeah, the yeah. there's that direct Nazi link. And then Ukraine, like when you talk about phase two, it's like. Uh, maybe you can tell us more about this. I'm not as well versed that you know we have these these Nazis uh in Ukraine that the West is supporting, so it's it's like this continuation you know um yeah yeah but yeah. also but also you know on the great reset, my biggest fear is this social credit digital i d system, which in many countries now is begin beginning to formulate like we we see in Australia, we see here in Mexico, we see in Europe the digital i d everywhere it's like forming globally, and you literally will need permission to do anything. In life and we've never seen this before in the history of the world and that you know the, the bible alludes to this in, in prophecy and in, in revelation yeah yeah and, yeah yeah and so but, but and, and you also wrote so an article deep. yeah and, and you also wrote an article that you think the great reset is failing i i, I would hope so yeah. and so yeah anywhere anywhere you want to go from from here on out you know your thoughts on the social credit system is it gonna establish itself and you know why do you think great
1: reset is, is failing? yeah okay okay so like uh First, you know, first of all, um, I look at uh some aspects. There's, you know, there's there's um uh Strauss Ho generational theory, and you have this idea of of you know gen- generations. And um and also there are things that happen to certain people in a generation within within a uh that are consistent throughout time. So for example um you and i are within a very close certain age range actually and and many of the people that have the concerns that we have are within this age range and this is not as and look don't get me wrong a global pandemic a threat of nuclear war these are serious things that uh that happen but actually every every generation uh when when that generation is between like the age of like 30 and 50 they're like, have a certain mature realism about human nature combined with a concern about their own economic future because they're still normally saving or business building or putting away, building equity in a home or something like this. They have the, the development of the, of the, of the, uh, the, neo, the neocortex, so they can, they're thinking about the future, whereas in their 20s, they were not. And, when you, and, and people who are in their 60s are generally already starting to live in the past. And, and they can keep up with what's happening, but their frame of reference, like what is what is, you know, what's life good at? You know, what's life good for is like, you know, taken from 20 years before. So it's actually uh, very much um, the thinking is is affected by generations in the in the change of generations. Uh, people talk about, you know, um, uh, Good times create weak men, weak men create, right? Okay. So people talk about that and that changes, but, but the, um, concern, the type of concerns, uh, more generally are like consistent, you know, throughout time for men and and our age range. And that is very interesting because we always have to be careful of our, of our perceptions so 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 people like you and i were having this very same conversation when credit cards came out in a very big way like in in the early 1980s and 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 that had come right after you know the the big changes in in american monetary policy during the nixon years and uh moving to to uh, more of a fiat i mean people say like more black and white than it was but it, you know obviously everything is mixed but People in the narrative, it's like we went away from a gold, you know, or metal standard over to a fiat currency. And that was a big question at the time, because Nixon was examining things that Milton Friedman had proposed, like the negative income tax credit, which is UBI. Uh, And people, of course, know what UBI was. And Andrew Yang began talking about it, along with trucks that drive themselves, right, because they know what kind of things that they're going to be rolling out. Um, But that that thing I just said only goes so far and that, and that can go in a very black pill direction. And and if the truth is black pill, then so be it, but it happens not to be. And, uh, and so one of the things, could we talk about the great reset failing actually? And the reason that it may not seem to be failing for a lot of people, uh, is again, another social psychological phenomenon. That's fascinating. It's truly fascinating because, um, you know, uh, people who are, let's say red pilled on things nevertheless have a confirmation bias. So when they hear people that they know are evil liars, you know, talk about, uh, you know, big promises and happy things and stuff, you're like, you know, that they're lying. But then when they make certain threats or they say things that upset us, then they're like, that's the truth. But these people are always lying. There's never a time that they're telling the truth. Every word out of their mouth is basically a lie. Or if it's truth, it's angled towards misleading or disinforming, you know. So people, these people were talking about Klaus Schwab. Well, they're always talking their book, man. They're always, you know. <laughs> so and and it's like people think that these people are different from any bullshit Hollywood you know, uh producer. Sean Penn. Who's like who's like, oh no, we got Brad Pitt lined up for this. Oh no, we got Brad Pitt's on our team. Oh no, no, we got them all. No, he's you know, Sharice Theron, she's there, she signed up for this, she's gonna be in it, you're gonna be in it. And you're like, wow, they're yeah, okay. So people know people may might think that that's you know bullshit when they hear that if they're you know smart enough to or you know mature enough to know. Uh, but when they hear things from uh klaus schwab and they say things that you know confirm our fears then we're like oh it's true right and um and they do that on purpose there there was there's a great example and i don't want to offend anybody because it's just you know and i and there's nothing there's, there's no deeper meaning to draw from this by the way simply a fact that during the syrian war um israel made very big uh press drops talking about how they prefer Assad over being over the region being overrun by jihadis. Makes sense on the face of it if you follow the basic narrative that you know Israel's confronting jihadis, jihadis are running around Syria. That's Israel's right there. And and Israel was dropping drops like Syria is a secular state. We don't want them to be destabilized because then that destabilization will flow to us. That information was false because we know that. I mean, it was false, not because of my opinion. It's false because we know that they were actually providing logistical and medical support for a lot of these jihadis running around and they weren't providing any logistical support for syria in fact they began to bomb you know their air force are to hit syrian targets calling them iranian but but iran was there at syria's request so who was iran helping with syria in this conflict just in this conflict these are just the facts and the fact was that israel said who their friends lied about who they were supporting so that the guys attacking Syria would think that that was true information and say, "Ah, that's so." If if Israel likes these guys, then we hate them, and now we will attack Syria instead of attacking Israel. So it was <laughs> so right. They play these games, and this happens. The World Economic Forum does the same stuff. They do it all the time, and uh, so when you look at, for example, like with Russia. Uh, you know, you had, there's like one time out of, well, probably literally 28 or 30 hours of Klaus Schwab speaking that you can find on YouTube. There was one time that he said, uh, he's like talking his book, right? He's the producer now. And he's like, oh yes, we have everybody lined up every, every, uh, uh, every single, uh, in every parliament of every country we have, we have our guys from, they were in the, uh, Youth. They were in the global youth leaders, uh, uh, and we, of course, Angela Merkel, and you know You may surprise you, even uh, Vladimir Putin. Yes, and people go, "Oh, fuck, that's true. It's true because the man who's lied about everything until now has said that." And um, and and then I think that once this conflict kicked off, that reality began to set in because oh, Russia's cut off from stripe they're cut off from visa mastercard imf uh you know world economic forum blah 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 um you can uh this i mean the list goes on i mean you we have a whole show just on the ways that russia has been cut off slowly since 2014 2015 in stages but uh they say you know a little bit of information is a dangerous thing and uh I look at things from the point of view of your average guy who doesn't have a close association with power and, and what they, their experience is that, you know, their, their boss or, or the credit card company or whoever has some lean or judgment on them. Maybe they go to fight it in court. They find the court is in collusion with, you know, the corporation Uh, They call the police. The police say this is a domestic, this is a civil dispute, whatever. you, We're not not a criminal. What are you talking about? Can't call the police on on a company. And people go, oh, the system is rigged. You know, every every side is working against, you know, the common man. But the thing is that other countries are not necessarily in your system. And um, one of the successes in information war, one of the great successes in information war of the elites is what I call the gargoyle effect which is that they have they have gotten conspiracy theorists to help them promote their power far beyond and above what it really is. So they've created a virtual reality, a holographic reality where they where they, you know, everything that happens is within their plan. Right. Any photograph of two people in the same room proves that they work together. Now, you've been around the world a number of times. This ain't your first radio. You've probably been photographed with people that don't work for you and you don't work for them. Gor- Gorbachev, of all people, I've shaken his hand so people can right. take- so, right. so you're actually you're a Gorbachev agent. <laughs> and I saw Gorbachev with Rothschild, which means that you're probably a Rothschild agent. Yeah, you got me now. I'm busted. You <laughs> know. So, you know, and that's how that's how people, you know, and I understand that people think that way because, you know, people are basically good. And they and and they speak they speak the truth when they have the opportunity to speak the truth, and they're thinking if I was in the room with that guy, I would tell him, "You mother, you know why are you bombing children? Why are you poisoning people?" And and and, and in but in the world, that's not how diplomacy works. That's not how people operate at that level. They have it's more like the mafia. You know, they give you the key, the kiss on the cheek. Oh, come sit down, have a glass of tea, whatever you know. And, and you're like, well, why, why are you so civil? You're like about to kill this guy. And that's how things work at, at that level. So people don't understand what why it is that these people can meet, you know, how it is, and they so they think that the photograph of two people together is evidence of collusion when actually they're they are not representing themselves personally. They are there representing a whole company, a whole society, a whole nation. There's different power groups within those you know, countries within those societies that has said, you know, you are our representative and you have to meet with people that you that don't always represent our national interest or or our corporate interest. But you have to meet with them to make this deal or pay this or receive that make this concession, et cetera. So, you know, and people don't like that. It's so uncomfortable to them uh how evil blends in so so just right you know so it's so well Hannah Arendt called it the banality of evil so it's so commonplace it's not like these people walking around with fangs well until recently because now the evil guys actually are like you know cartoon character evil uh which I think is a good sign because they're taking the the gargoyle effect to the next level um another thing I talk about is in fact that the polling on how people perceive these people, like the polling on how people perceive uh, Gil Bates is so um, it's so well established. Uh, for example, like when when 45 was making his first run in the campaign, um, they had a third party company called Cambridge Analytica buy a bunch of data from Facebook so they knew exactly like when they were constructing what would be the perfect campaign slogans and what kind of conspiracy theories can we kind of develop upon that people might get into they were they used all that data from Facebook to, uh, to know, in the same way that when you people on Facebook just you know they might have an interest in something and then they see all the ads for that like oh hunting gear how would they know i like i'm collecting right so it's just like that. So, uh, and they can also, you know, going in the direction of pre crime and social credit, uh, they can be like, wow, you, you have all these interests that are the same as people that are 98% of the time guilty of this crime. So we might just arrest you now. That's like right, one of the directions that it's going pre crime. Um, but in terms of, they know, they know very well how unliked uh, people like uh, Mr. Bates are. They, they really know, like, like they, it's it's not like you know how when they used to have the dislike button on YouTube like 10 years ago and uh it feels like so long ago they had the dislike button and you could see like whatever like 14,000 like you know a million views 14,000 likes and like 990,000 dislikes <laughs> that means people disliked without even watching it so uh they know that they they know that before you know before you know that right so then, why then, why are they putting these people out there? Well, maybe it's like when like, when somebody kind of tries to force himself onto situations, and yeah, whether you like me or not, here I am. Uh, but they know how people react to that too, you know. So yeah, that I don't have answers to that, but it's a very for everyone to kind of play with that idea and to start to kind of think about it from that perspective. Like, why do they put these people that are so abhorrent, to, like so so repulsive to us? Like everyone knows that. Like Klaus Schwab is fucking strange. Like he talks strange. He comes off bad. Like he's he he he's like his accent is like too German even for a German. It's like a joke. It's like a parody of like a of like an evil German guy. So yeah, I and so <clears throat> they have succeeded in creating a and 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 seeding the kind of like a hasbara a, a program of, or or uh you know Hillary Clinton also was one of the first with her you know bot and troll army to 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 actually seed and and develop these broad conspiracy theories uh they might involve people of a certain religion or a certain ethnicity that run the world and that be, and and things like this and while uh, uh while of course there are always facts, whether decontextualized or even in in inappropriate context, it may seem to like reinforce that worldview. The relative power that, that let's say, the Western globalist elites have is necessarily less than what, what you perceive it as, because their number one objective is to project more power than they have. So the power that you perceive them to have is always more power than they really have. So I'm not an optimist or a pessimist, but that's in fact how it works. Uh, And I think that that means that there are opportunities to push against this. Um, When you just think about money, and I I know it's strange, but um, like all the money that Bill Gates has is like $3,000 from each American. Right. So when you think about it in that terms, like, well, that's not as much money as it seems, even though it's whatever, you know, 90 billion or 120 billion, I don't know, changes every day now. So uh i mean we could take that any number of directions whatever interesting to you yeah i would just say you're
0: i i really love this perspective and you're like the first person uh, on the podcast that has come with this perspective and that's why i try to pull guests from different angles like what you were saying earlier trying to put piece the truth together and i think it's extremely valuable what you say and then yeah we often give more credit to these people than, than um they deserve it, as well as your, your thing. I get people all the time, like on my different channels, who say, you know, I share, I share something from everyone. You know, Netanyahu made an important statement. I, it doesn't mean I agree with him, but it's important we need to know what he said. You know, Netanyahu right. or, or the State Department or, you know, the uh, Kremlin or whatever. We got to put all this information out there and see what they're saying, what they're not saying, the disinformation, the information. And, you know, I shared Pavel Durov's, the founder of Telegram, uh, his statements when he says something on Telegram people will say oh uh, telegram was you know uh, created by the wef world economic forum it's like okay he, so? <laughs> he, he, he well he, he just received an award from the world economic forum correct correct show me information that telegram was specifically created by world economic forum now if we go right. to like if we talk about you know facebook or google we found the information that uh, google and facebook were seed funded by cia nsa pentagon so we know that google and facebook definitively. And, you know, we have the evidence that, you know, DARPA created life log, uh, which is basically Facebook. So we we Mm -hmm. have concrete information there so far. I haven't found it on telegram. So that's going back to what you're saying that. uh, And I agree. I studied diplomacy, you know, just because I shook hands with Gorbachev. um, You know, I, I, at that time, I just wasn't, I didn't have the metal to ask him about, you know, uh, world government and these things that he's. Right. right. And it's kind of like when you're, you're there to talk about us, Russia relations, um and it's and then you have that a little bit out of that shock and awe experience you're with someone that important and he's like 90 years old and I kind of didn't want to go there you know and so yeah yeah it, yeah. it, it depends on your mood you know it's very diplomatic you know looking back I'm like yeah maybe I should have but you know you you yeah. can't judge people when you're in that moment.
1: Well, and- geopolitics, IR, diplomacy is all very interrelated. It's it just actually different universities can call the same thing, different names. And, and what's very interesting about, about that is that you're in a very good position to appreciate something that other people appreciate as soon as they hear it, but they not, might not have been exposed to it before, which is that the default position of any country is to try to have as many friends as possible. It's not to try to like line up the white hats against the black hats, the goodies against the baddies. It's a, to be as neutral as possible and as open to possibilities as possible, because an alliance can actually become a type of enslavement, and uh, especially if the other power is greater. You want to be able to triangulate. You want to, you know, you don't want someone to force you to be their friend. You know, that's kind of like the mafia we talked about. So, uh, you know, I love you so much. How can you hurt my feelings like this? You know, and uh, it's like, fuck, man, you know. So it's uh, with the Great Reset. They um, they look, it's it's people can see uh, you have to have an analysis of power, first of all, an analysis of power as the elites understand it um, based on their actions uh, based on on the views that they promote outside of the public domain, and uh, is that power actually changes hands very quickly? And um, it's the the i just people when you when you think of people like any elected president or official or head of a corporation, just because you can probably establish that they are a member of this maybe secret society or sit on this panel that's, uh, you know, extra supra-governmental or, you know, supranational, whether it's the Bilderberg or whatever, the CFR or, you know, et cetera, et cetera, right? The Davos, okay. Um, Just because that is the case um, and just because some of these organizations are spun off of or inherited from organizations that you can track back say to the early 19th century or something like this. That's about when a lot of these things seem to go back to. Um, doesn't mean that those people in the 19th century came up with a vision and that everyone is following at lockstep, okay? The, the word lockstep and the concept of lockstep is part of power projection. That's the gargoyle effect. That's why Biden and people like this are now saying lockstep, okay? It's, they're not saying the quiet part out loud. Okay, they're saying the lie, they're saying the, the nonsense out loud. There's been no real lockstep in the development of e- of the elites over two centuries. They of course it's make money over lose money, build power over lose power, like those are the basics. But on the individual level, these are highly ego-driven people. Okay, which means that they're first of all always looking for the knife in their back from one of their colleagues of the same class and same stature—they're not like, you know—it's a very lonely thing to have fifty billion dollars because, you know, the guy with even like two billion dollars isn't really shit, you know, compared to you. It's a very lonely thing to have a hundred billion dollars, and and yet it doesn't make you friends with the other people that have a. In fact, you may hate each other more than anyone else because it's like that movie Highlander. There can be only one. So it's and they're constantly looking for that knife in their back. And now, of course, you 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 keep your friends close, but you keep your enemies closer. And so, of course, you always see them together. They're sitting on the same committees and the same councils in the same way that you see the Russia-Ukraine negotiating team sitting in the same room together. That doesn't mean that there's a freaking conspiracy between Russia and Ukraine because they're having deconfliction talks in the same room and they all take a photo together because the name of that committee has a name like the committee on the drawing the peace for Russia, Ukraine, you see? So it's, it's, it's a conceptual framework. It's not that people have their facts wrong. It's that they don't understand. It's like when you look at a picture, right? It's, it's not dynamic. You, when you see a picture, you start filling in the meanings of the different symbols and image and things that you see in that picture. So people are often not getting the wrong picture. But they're getting the narrative all wrong, you know, like when they do tests for like maybe developmentally challenged kids and they're trying to look at and they might, you know, like a normal kid might say like, you know, oh, well, that's mom, dad and the kid. And like a kid who's missing the story is going to be like, "Uh, this is a policeman who's arresting my mom. And then, you know, that's my dead brother, Albert. And you're like, no, 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 dude, like these are these are not at all what's going on in this picture, man. Yeah. you know I mean that's your that's your interpretation, and you know the test is for that, so maybe there's no wrong answers there but but in reality, we're supposed to understand we have to put these pieces together so um with that, I think understanding that is gonna help a lot of people, you know that these elites are always looking for divisions, so when you start having these big things happen like well you can go back to 2008 remember like with the too big to fail i mean they were all you know you have uh these you know uh different smaller private banks you have big you know uh maybe uh corporate or intelligence back you know banks that have the power to create money as opposed to the you know banks which take that money that that the interest rates are set for them uh it's almost confusing to call central banks banks in that sense that we're talking about um, interest rate setting institutions versus uh, direct consumer lending institutions have a, have a conflict of interest. Right. But when you see them, they're all go to the same gala together. You know what I'm saying? Like, like, like their husbands and wives are friends with each other and they might even work together to get their kids to like support the same Congressman or get the same easy job in Washington, DC. But that doesn't mean that broadly people have a hard time understanding that elites and and the very super super wealthy compartmentalize things and they can simultaneously have some people come over to play golf or whatever while at the same time plotting how they're going to kill them and um it's very game of thrones is what i guess the the way that people might understand it yeah and you know i just use an example Uh,
0: i've i've i when i was in geneva i went to the to a meeting of Lutz's Trust, the Lucifer Publishing Company, founded by Alice Bailey, doesn't mean I'm a esoteric occultist, um, Luciferian Satanist. Quite the contrary, but I want to go to these meetings to see, you know, w- w- what's going on. Um, and, and also, you, you know, you mentioned the, the World Economic Forum and Putin, and I'm not discounting the possibility that, you know, maybe Putin or factions within the U- Russian government are on board with Sh- Schwab's plan. You got, you know, Hermann Groth and Sparebank or or whatnot, and I, I'm still oscillating. I haven't put my foot down on, on, you know, w- whether that's the case or not. So I oscillate between th- them having penetrated uh, more power than we think in all countries, Russia, China, the West sure, sure. everywhere, but I'm still not sure. And just like you say, like, you know, I always use the example of JFK. JFK, the Kennedy family was uh, an elite family, an aristocratic family. But JFK, as the individual, he turned. He did a 180. He grew his conscience, and he punched back against the system, and they took him out. So we always have these X factors that will come up, and yes, you just yes. don't know where things are, are going to go. Um, and just, you know, in the interest of time, we we did, you, you, you taught us a lot about the Great Reset and how to think. And, you know, just to get your thoughts then on... Um, What's going on currently with, um, I guess we can call a great reset part two, you know, Ukraine, NATO, um, Russia, I I kind of view it as the fault of Washington, Brussels, London, and and NATO, you know, basically the globalists, what's going on with Ukraine. I, I also do view that. Russia does want to fortify its positions and you know wants to restore something kind of, maybe I don't know what you want to call it a civilizational state or empire but I more accurately I would say it's manifested in the form of a Eurasian unit union and I call it an empire because you know many have called the European Union an empire which I think it is um it's just a new form of empire and so I think Russia a lot of people have said that you know nation states are are dying and these new regional blocks are coming into being and so the new game is this you know european union latin american union african union eurasian union so to survive you kind of have to create your own form of that and um so you know what are your thoughts on what's going on
1: with ukraine well, yeah, now yeah yeah, yeah, NATO yeah. And,
0: and russia and you know well, what well, terminologically
1: what... terminologically i would never you know call things that are worth aspiring for an empire personally i would never term it that way and when i've picked the brains i've had the opportunity in life to pick the brains of people prominently known for trying to term these things as empires in a positive sense. What I actually extracted from them is that these are, are more like federations and they're like, well, in the medieval times and then I just, you know, my tune out, but I mean, I don't tune out. What they mean is that in the medieval times, power was so dissimulated that empires were actually federations. So I'm thinking, well, why not just call it a federation then? Cause we're not in the medieval times we're not proposing to go back to the medieval times and it doesn't seem very possible or maybe what we even want to do. So, so let's not call it things empires, but I hear you. I mean, in terms of colonialism, imperialism as a model, it's, you know, you have this, this concept, you, you would know it very well of sea power and land power, right? You have like a a telluric power and a thalassocratic power and the telluric powers is land powers and then sea powers. So like a land power is different in its, some of its functions uh, we're talking about in centuries past, and this will change in the future as technologies change, but it's still relatively applicable. But in the interest of time, you know, it's it's like, it's basically this, um, sea power, uh, the, the the sort of British empire and the American empire that were built off of uh, maybe some mixture of colonialism and imperialism, which are a little distinct, but we don't have to like, you know, we don't have to deconstruct that, but people get the idea and really involve the control of the oceans and, and ports. And, um, and we saw, of course, like the empire of Japan relied very much on naval power and they were like modeled after the British empire. And the thing about ports is the thing about sea powers is that you can target one port because every every country that has access to oceans, which is enough of them, it's, it's quite a few of them. Uh, there are a lot of landlocked countries in Africa and in Eurasia, but a lot of countries have access to, to ports, on the other hand, or the Black Sea. And so you have this problem of that you can block any of the big powers, can target block the port of, of any you know, Port City, and then they are on blockade, they are on sanctions. Yeah. But with a land power, if you have like super highways or trains or roads or, you know, right, you have to build collaboration from each of the transit countries along the way. And you can't, you can't stop, you can't target a transit country without automatically drawing in the direct you know fiduciary responsibilities of of the other countries it's not a matter of human rights or international law or a rules based system it's actually like oh our road is cut off because your road is cut off so there's there's something to be said about the stability of that and the viability of of land based powers and the and the um, american empire as opposed to the constitutional system in America. I want people, I'm not saying that Americans are imperialists. Americans are hardworking people and the empire has hurt us a lot because it's made the wealthy too wealthy and then they bought off our system. Right? So that's why I don't go for the empire's, you know, trickle down benefits or I don't go, it doesn't work because the power that the elites gain is too great relative to our power, economic power. So you have this, um, problem. So when, um, The Ukraine crisis is where you have a decline in in the sea power, which is called transatlanticism, because no one lives in Atlantica. It's It's not we're talking about Mu or Lemuria or the sunken, hidden island of Atlantis or something. The Atlantic powers, they're calling it that, but that's a freaking uninhabitable ocean. No one lives there. They're saying that they control this whole sphere of the planet, half the world through transatlanticism right and then the other half is the other half and and they're trying to have a Pacific, you know policy and everything but another time we can talk but with atlanticism that's what has driven this collision course so you're very right because you're talking about new i think you said new york london brussels or new york london berlin something like this so this is that's that's atlanticism and it's not tenable, like just when people think about, you know, what does it cost to move things across an ocean or what's the speed of that? And and for a long time, you know, a boat moves four times and then eight times faster than a caravan. And a lot of trains used to move at like, you know, very slow speed. But then um, also there's been clear policies uh, from the inherited wealth and power of the sea powers to frustrate uh, infrastructural development of land-based transit systems. You see, I know Matt Eret talks a lot about this, so I, in, in his own language, but so I won't. You know, that's he, he's he's um, more read in and educated on the details of, of the names of those projects and when the completion dates are and what the volume of trade is expected to be and things like this. But I think more globally, we can say that with the conflict in Ukraine, this is a direct outgrowth of. Of Russia, which is recovered from the Soviet collapse, right? It's emerging as a land power that that has already the 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 power, you know, the land, the transit of natural gas and other oil and gas to Europe, which altogether in all three categories averages about 40, 45% of Europe's energy needs come from Russia, right? And that's a natural that means that if you just follow the natural of of, of history. Like you, when you think about like how how uh, the Fran- Galia Gaul- France became Romanized. You know, is like first the Romans built roads, right, and then the Gauls built roads, and then the Romans kind of conquered with those roads the the Gauls, and then the Gauls kind of conquered the Romans with those roads. But these this, and then at a certain point, you go forward seven eight hundred years. And the French are more Roman than the Romans. You had the Carolingian Renaissance and so forth, right? So the idea is that ultimately, you know, France and, and Italy became one kind of power. And France and Germany became oh, sorry, Germany, France, and Italy were like one power, right? All brought together by these Roman roads that had developed over centuries. So when you look at the the gas lines. From Russia to this is all about the gas lines. Okay, the gas lines you talk about like the the brotherhood, uh, unity, Nord Stream One, Nord Stream Two, these are the major gas lines that go from Russia into Europe, and that's what it's all about, man. And so, like, the US is like they can see that the natural gravity of these natural historical economic developments is gonna take down this. Berlin Wall that that Atlanticism has, you know, placed there. And you have, you know, people like Putin saying, you know, Mr. Biden, take down this wall. And uh, I think that's, you know. To your Gorbachev experience, you'll appreciate uh, the the parallels, but they've inversed. Yeah, this is a great uh, explanation you, you've given, and there's just
0: a lot to go off there. And I hope it whets people's appetites to go further back in, in history and, and read, because you have to understand, you know, the past thousands of years of history as well to understand what's going on now. And maybe if you could then, you know, give us your take um, to, to sort of move towards closing. Um, you know, what, what happens now? With with NATO, Ukraine, and, and and Russia, and the rest of the world, you know, China. Like, you, are we going to see a diplomatic settlement to this? Do you, you know, are we going to see escalation to to World War Three? Oh, um, uh, yeah, yeah, and then yeah. and then Revolution. you know, the, and then what what are you, what's your take on the Great Reset failing? So like, then the, does that mean then? The the world breaks into like little, I guess you said like fiefdoms, but big fiefdoms. Like we have the Atlantis. Okay, west, yeah, I'm sorry, I failed then, your question. No, no, yeah, no, 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 right. no, no. Yeah. You didn't fail. I just want to get your like thoughts on the. Where do you think? No, then, I mean we're you going. asked it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Is it going to be World okay. War Three or are, are, are yeah, we yeah. Out? Two giant systems where the East, maybe you know, <laughs> maybe
1: World War Three, yeah, <laughs>
0: maybe, or you know, the East will uh, operate on, on union pay, and we right, in the West right. we just use uh-huh. Visa and Mastercard, and they've got their own like things going on in these two different multipolar worlds, or um, and, and the Great Reset I, I failing. It, like, yeah. th- th- does that mean that we won't have these social credit systems then, or it'll take a longer time to get them, or it's going to be like patchwork where in some places they work,
1: in some countries, and some, some they don't more like that. So what I what I see is five blocks in the world that will emerge over the next 30 years. Okay, and those five blocks, Africa is going to continue to develop by leaps and bounds, but it's going to be primarily uh, by North American capital in Western uh, Africa and Chinese capital in East Africa and Central Africa. And then you'll have South Africa emerging as a stabilizing sort of indigenous power in Africa in the south. And you'll have countries in, like Egypt will take the place that Libya was going to try to was trying to do in sort of terraforming uh, the desert and then creating a, a north, Sahara, you know, north of the Sahara power and prepare for, you know, greening, real greening, not not Green New Deal greening opposite of that, actually. Uh, increase carbon emissions and and actually uh, increase the the rate of the water cycle as as global warming is happening maybe slowly that will have a, a net positive effect on vegetable growth and the, the greening of of the Sahara, which the Sahara is very interesting because many people learned correctly at one point it's kind of almost like a parallel reality. So a lot of people learned that the Sahara desert, had been, um, was greener when times were warmer. And then as we are in this, uh, we are, we're a little bit in maybe arguably a warming, a warm period within a mini ice age, right? And, uh, but we are in an ice age. And, but, the, but before this ice age, the Sahara was tropical rainforest with, well, it, and then it had like a, it had like a, what is it called a phase where it was, uh, you know, a tundra and so forth. So those blocks are going to be Latin America, Africa, uh, North America with England. Um, and, uh, you know, Eurasia is a block, but I, you know, I think China is almost its own thing. And one, a lot of the great power politics is going to revolve around how China, India can, can, can work that out, you know, but I don't see a bipolar world emerging um I see a multipolar world. Um, I, I was talking about a multipolar world ten years ago and and uh, it was considered a conspiracy theory at the time. It was fact checked as false uh, five, seven years ago. and and now, and you know they what do they say? First, they ignore you, then they mock you, then they right? what's okay. So now it's like everyone's saying, well, within the context of multipolar world, and I'm like, fuck you, you know, fuck you, you know, like, but they're right, but you know, but they lied about it for so long. And it is a multipolar world emerging. They just finally have acquiesced to it. And I so I don't I don't think that the US um has the power to escalate in Ukraine, but they can do dirty bombs, false flags, uh terrorist attacks, and they can they can try to operationalize a lot of the kind of syrian war stuff so i and while the dynamics and history of the syrian war are so very different from ukraine without you know quite obviously so nevertheless the real issues are that um is that russia is not invited but they don't have a country like israel that they need to be involved in balancing with over the outcome of that region they're actually now in a full power projection mode and so i don't think that the solution is well what does it mean to say the solution is diplomatic well obviously at the very end the diplomats agree on some you know uh pax romana at the end of something but i think it's going to be more like you know brenner what was it they victim or right so it's going to be like woe to the vanquished and it's going to be you know russia's i i you know uh I I listen to what Lavrov says, and I've been I've been decoding the language I call Lavrovian for the Lavrovian for the past decade. And I understand the logic of Russian foreign policy and the kind of the bullshittery that comes out of their mouths, frankly, and the way that that actually. And it's it's like because they are they have operated very fairly and very transparently within what's called the international law system. And what has happened is that that international law system has been eroded, primarily by that axis that you talked about—the Brussels, Berlin, London, Washington, New York axis. Okay, and they have been trying to kind of slowly insert this new word called "rules-based order," this new phrase called "rules-based order." It's like what? What? And, and Trudeau, I think, just said the word "order" in his, you know, and and, um, and it's like no, no, no. There's international law. And then there's whatever you want to fucking do. And those are two different things, but they're trying to make whatever they want to fucking do be the rules-based order. And that's not the same thing as international law. So this conflict does not going to have a diplomatic solution, although at the end, hands will be shook and it'll look diplomatic, but there's not going to be an agreed, there's not, there's not a somewhere in the middle here. There's no, there's no somewhere in the middle with this conflict. OK, that unless I mean, I'm, Russia can fail to reach its objectives. OK, but its actual objectives. And, and I'm not even suggesting that they should be honest about because we understand how people function and how language is interpreted and the signs and all this, you know, Lacanian nonsense. We understand signs signify and everything. So we understand that people say the word neutrality is good. Oh, yeah, they would just want Ukraine. But instead of uh, but I think for Honest analysts who who don't work for the Kremlin, like myself, that, that when we just want to get out what what to the audience is what we really think is happening. I don't want to be in a position of explaining how Russia dominating Ukraine is actually neutrality. Like I've never told people that Belarus is an independent country from Russia, because like, they're not. You know what I mean? Like like it, does it work for Belarus? Like yeah, it works a lot better for Belarus than being part of the EU. But can Lukashenko like say like Fuck you, Putin, like take no, like you know what I mean? Like it's very clear how that relation, they're in a union state. And I see a likely is something like a union state. And this is what I call unraveling Lavrovian, because Lavrov's Lavrov says that Belarus is a neutral country. So when he says we want Ukraine to be a neutral country, then you have to look at what his cause he always uses language consistently. He never minces words in terms of, he never uh uses the same word differently. He always uses the same word, the same way to mean this. He's highly consistent, highly organized. It doesn't mean that the words that he uses are what you think they mean at first, but once you learn them, you can understand exactly what he means. So it's this, you have, this is, and you'll appreciate this super extra fast because this is right. This is this is what you spent six, six years studying. You have the, the concept of Russia is that with to explain how we arrived at international law because everything is consistent with international law the theories are built in is this you have historically you had what were called state forming peoples and not all peoples were state forming peoples which explains why maybe croatians wound up as part of austro-hungary serbs wound up as part of ottoman empire um you know things like this right those but but then maybe Circumstances change. And then in different centuries, they did emerge as a state forming people. Then the question is, are they going to remain a state forming people? Okay. That's not guaranteed either. Right. Uh, You can look at countries like Ukraine or Poland or Lithuania that have like had, you know, this, they've contracted, expanded, collapsed, rebuilt. Right. Then there's another concept that goes beyond that called Are you a system forming state? In other words, like Yugoslavia was a system forming, was a, was a state forming system, but sorry, a system forming state, system forming state, the state formed a system, right? In other words, like you had um, uh, Serbia, Croatia, Bosnia, sort of, there was some power imbalances between them, but none of them could really conquer each other. But they also saw that a war of all against all just made them weaker and they decided to form the kingdom of Yugoslavia, right? and that went from being these different, uh, people, uh, people form, uh, state forming peoples into, uh, system forming, system uh, system forming states. So that was a system. Now those systems can be deconstructed and taken apart. The Soviet Union, the Imperial Russia was a system. It wasn't just the Russian people, everyone's Russia. You had like, Uh, all the people, you know, they used to call the Tsarist empire, the prison house of nations. You had, you know, Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan, all the stands, right. You had uh, Ukraine, you had Belarus, you had all these things that, you know, Catherine the great, and then subsequent, you know, and then, and then the Soviet union was uh, very similar to that in terms of it being a system. So um, now with that, with that doctrine, okay. Then when you see, Words come out of press secretary Peskov, or or Putin himself, or Lavrov saying we're not sure that Ukraine has the institutions to be a state. Like we're not sure that Ukraine actually exists, right? They've like, said that. They said that at the very end or first week of March, last very end of February. Like we're not sure that Ukraine is like a real entity. Like wow, not in the genocidal sense. Like not like not like that. Like. In other words, like, uh, the Ukraine is kind of weird because um, it was it it went from being arguably the nucleus of a people that may have have or not at one point been able to form a state. But then the the bigger power that actually had them in their system, like adjoined other lands to them. right? So then when they broke off from the Soviet Union, they have like all these trappings of a system-forming state, but they didn't have a historically internally arisen ideology and belief system and culture that, that comes organically in that process. So when they tried to assert independence, the expression of that is in that more basic uh, state-forming peoples, which is going to be ethno-nationalism. Because ethno nationalism is acceptable in the 1600s, the 1700s, and the 1800s, you know, after the, in the from the Westphalian period into the Romantic Age, but once you get into wep- the period of weapons of mass destruction, people associate ethno nationalism with total wars of extermination, i.e., Nazi Germany, etc. So we have a contradiction, and, and and it's exactly that these ideas of of uh, state forming peoples that were extreme nationalisms in the 1600s and 1700s. I mean, Liszt, Chopin, like many different people were, were extreme nationalists, but armies really just couldn't project. There was no chemical weapons. People armies couldn't really project that much power beyond you might fight for years over 20 kilometers or something, you know? So that's the, that's the problem with Ukraine is that they have this combined and uneven development, this this different, they are kind of have different stages of development in their own internal collective cultural psychology that's at odds with all of the land and different peoples that live there, whether it's Crimean Tatars, you have, you know, Carpathians, you have Galicians that are Galician Galicians, you have Galicians that are like, we're going to dominate Ukrainian identity Galicians, you have Two or three different versions of spoken Ukrainian plus the Russian slang Ukrainian. You have um just um, just among Galicians, you have ones that are more like Polish Galicians, Rusenian Galicians, which are the same thing as you know, Ruthenian Rusin or Ruthenian Galicians, uh, all the Carpathians right there, and then The Kievan people, I mean, Kiev is a very Russian city and and for the past hundred years, Russians, Russians, Russians live in Kiev and its suburbs and stuff. So it's all like a checkerboard of this shit, right? So it's a total shit show to to then try to project an ethno-nationalism based upon the most convenient identity of a given people of the very west of the country onto another whatever, 20, 30 different oblasts and regions. It's, it's, it's almost narcissistic and self-destructive. Uh, and it's, it doesn't fit. They have to change your language. You have to change your name, right? Uh, you have to change your last name. It's, it's basically, you know, like I said, it's all the same things that Greece did. It's all the same things that Turkey did, that Bulgaria did, that Serbia, Croatia did. All these countries did these things in the 1800s when they were forming nations. And it's just, it's unfortunate for the Ukrainian people that are they're, they? They're trying to form into peoplehood, and the only frame of reference that that justifies that in recent modernity is Nazism. And <laughs> so, so it's it's ugly, but it's also tragic. And so, you can have sympathy for this people trying to become a people in the fullest sense of the modern sense. Yet they're they're stuck in time, and their references are all the wrong ones. And then you have Russia which is more powerful than it's been since probably 1970, 1975. And just the natural law of gravity is that their, is that their backyard, right? Becomes their enclosed den. And then that backyard becomes another piece of land that's farther out. So whether you call that empires or federation, I mean, Russia is a federation. You know, it's a land power. If they can develop, I, so I just cut through the the BS of the Russian Foreign Ministry talk. They're they're in, and I, you know, don't get me wrong. Lavrov is a gentleman. He's a he he doesn't change the terms of deals. He does not play those kinds of games. The words mean what they mean. The Ukrainian negotiating team coming out of the third and fourth session are flummoxed. They're confused. They're like, what do these words mean? Denazification demilitarization. Because what we think they mean is that we're out of a job. Like we thought that we're bargaining about us in control of Ukraine after this is over. But it turns out that neutrality is that we're in jail. Or maybe we're bargaining about how we're personally not in jail. But the whole state is going to be deconstructed. They have to go back to the pre-2004 constitution. It's going to be the Russian you know, private sphere, NGO sphere, military, basically, you know, full spectrum domination over Ukraine, that's their best possible outcome. They're going to call that neutrality. I don't call that neutrality, but I do call it stability, prosperity, and growth. I just don't have illusions about how power works and how language works, I guess.
0: Yeah, that's a great uh, explanation and a lot I agree with. And I would also mention that you mentioned Croatia and Yugoslavia, that example that We were in this system, as you said, Yugoslavia. We broke out in the 90s. We became a state again. But unfortunately, I I feel like we're no longer a state because we rejoined the European Union, which I view as a totalitarian and undemocratic construct. It's this new kind of system. And, you know, we're going to we're about to lose our national currency, the Kuna, and get the get the euro and we all our banks have we don't have any we don't own any of our banks and all of that so we we've joined this system and it goes back to what i was saying earlier that i think again the new global chessboard are these supranational systems which I don't like, um, you know. Maybe we don't have to play this game. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. But may- maybe, maybe we do because these are the new rules of the game. I, I don't know. And so, exactly yeah. what you're talking about: Ukraine forming a state between. Well, how could it form a state if you know the EU wants you, Ukraine to plug into the EU system, which then right, it, lo- right. it loses its statehood, or, or, or you know, into the Russian. I, I don't yeah, know. Yeah, yeah. So,
1: it's like what are you? It's like you have to choose. You know, you kind of have to choose, and and you had, you know. Uh, You had leaders like Tito that tried to be in both places, tried to balancing and stuff. You had Yanukovych was the last guy in Ukraine um, who wasn't from electronic voting. He was overthrown in the, the Maidan in 2014, everybody knows, I'm sure. And he was trying to balance. And like, when you look at it, it's like, you don't look at, are they corrupt? If they're politicians. Of course they're corrupt. That's like saying like, do they have two eyes or something? Like, okay, that's not the, the debate. It's like, were their policies aimed at like balancing between like what's normal? And did they represent like a country that was actually put together by a system, not as the outgrowth of its own, uh, you know, people forming a state forming people, but actually was a system that was created externally. And then, like you rightly say, they're either going to be drawn into this gravity or that gravity. Now, here's the cool thing about that, by the way. It's the U.S. that's preventing either of those solutions from working. Now, I'm not a Russophile. I think that Ukraine could work in the European Union But it's the U.S. that is wants does not want the European Union to get more stable, stronger or anything. They want to keep it right on that edge, right on that razor's edge where it makes sense that if if they are having difficulty that they can lash out against Russia, whereas the net like in other words, it doesn't really matter if. If uh, let's say Yugoslavia still existed or Serbia, because Serbia is not EU, it doesn't really matter if Serbia goes more towards the EU or more towards Russia, if Russia and the EU are coming closer together, because then you kind of have, it's actually the same thing. It's like potato, potato. Right. So um, another, you know, just to to throw out there for your listeners and your viewers, and thank you for having me on today. It's been a fantastic experience is like, is like, You could have a Yugoslavia plus Bulgaria and you could, you know, it's a very large landmass, actually, the Balkans. People don't like, what is that? It's like, whoa, that's so big. I thought that was like all like Alexander's Greece and like, okay, it was. But I mean, just this is, you know, it's not Greece. People look for Greece and they find the Balkans, but it's all that stuff north of Greece, that big piece of land. Right. It's like the size of Europe. It's another Europe that's not Europe and it could be it could be its own thing in this in, in you know people think in these grandiose terms like Eurasia or something i've just described that there's two africas emerging right i mean there's a north south africa that's the, that's indigenous development and then there's an east west africa that's you know imperial development or colonial development from china and the us those are two africas that are going to come together in four different ways right you're going to have the Americas is, North, is culturally Latin America, where you are, and North America is, includes Mexico, but people think North America, they think Canada, U.S. Mexico, North America, by the way, folks. But people think of Canada, U.S. as a distinct civilizational zone from Latin America, right? And India is like its own civilization, and China is its own civilization. Reasonably, you could see, you know, Korea, uh, Korea and China and Japan— reasonably you could see that and because the economics are already there i just had the um uh the 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 opportunity to speak at length with a asian a longtime uh asian business uh guy there um uh, amon mckinney who writes for strategic culture foundation he's a he's a colleague of uh, matthew eretz also and he's saying and i kept pressing him he's like actually like japan and china are so economically inter inter cross-penetrated that like reading newspapers that you would think that you're still like in the 1920s or something where, you know, China is trying to push Japan off of its country or whatever. Right. And it's just not that way. So I agree with you and all your points make perfect sense. And I think all your questions are the right ones. Certainly, uh, Ukraine uh, is not is, is the peace that Russia has is a Russian peace. And if there's no negotiating There's no negotiating that deal that all the all that shit has been um, mapped out and um, and they still might not get what they want, you know, and you might have a Syria prolonged conflict there, too. Right. Um, But the Great Reset is is the, the biggest signs that the Great Reset is failing is that they had intended to do the the Reset. Uh, specifically to undo the sovereignty of the remaining blocks, and that for a lot of different reasons that didn't happen and um there is also the inability uh for the elites, even though they could predict they knew exactly what people were interested in from a marketing or political polling point of view they didn't they overestimated how to explain this okay and this will be the end of of our talk i suppose but i want people to come away with this cuz this is really your question they they were so out of touch with the actual economic position of most americans they actually believed that americans had it better than they actually did and americans had the middle class already disappeared and they had gone the american ruling class had gone into a post-material reality where everything was notional reality. So that the fact that Americans are notionally middle-class, even though by many global matrix, they're in poverty, they thought that that concept of being middle-class would, would make them not want to lose what they had and would go along with the reset. Um, it's tempting for people to want to think that they plan that people would push back and it's like you're fishing and you let the lure out and you reel it back in. No, 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 no. They just go for the thing. And then when people push back, then they recalibrate in real time. That's called contingency planning. So it's not like it's all a plan and no matter how much you push, that's part of the plan. They might talk like it is to gargoyle affect your ass, but they actually don't have as much power as you think. So when you keep pushing... And then you resist it. You people have way more power in solidarity when they stand together against these things than they think they do. And when you see that the how they had to pull back on these things and then change it, like you said, uh, a great reset part two with Russia, that was not like their optimal plan. Like they're like, oh, we have to go back to these conventional. Like they thought they had gone past. They were like living in the future. They're like, it's going to be biological war, psychological war. And they're like, oh, fuck, we're back in the 19th century. Great power rivalry. So I think they're, you know, like you said, there's going to be uh, uh, union pay. Russia's going to have their Mir card. It's going to be connected to a Mir account union pay. It's going to be no different. There's Russian PayPal. There's there's Russian everything. There's Chinese everything. It's not. We're not living in the 1950s where Anglo-Saxons get to go on vacation wearing those bizarre safari hats and belly packs like they're in a third world country when they're fucking not. And it's just not that world anymore. But a lot of people think that, you know, a lot of people making the decisions are about 90 years old on life support. And when you think about like, well, how does that make a difference? World War Two, right? World War Two was breathed into existence right by people born in 18 fucking 70 they came out of that world man like that's why world war II went down like that so we, we have this is the year 2020 and the people making the decisions were right now were born like in 1945 they're just not they just don't you know, they can look at the data they can look at the cambridge analytica but you know they go like i'm going to go with my good instinct here You know, all the the, the round table, the meeting, like we hear the data makes sense. Thanks for the, you know, get a promotion, you know, go fuck yourself. And then boom, they do. They just revert to type. So I'm optimistic.
0: Thanks. That is uh, really good stuff. I'll have to get you back on uh, again. And yeah, I don't think even Pelosi and Biden can't even look at this stuff. She was, uh, there was a clip yesterday where she was just mumbling as she was speaking <laughs> like no one <laughs> understands. It's just idiot- <laughs> literally idiocracy. And, you know, uh. I just I just remembered the, the point you made about talking about multipolar 10 years ago, getting yeah. credit, credit is due. I was kind of miffed. I was watching uh, Infowars yesterday. They interviewed Francis Boyle. They say, you were the first to break the story on here and for wars and i'm like and he's actually corrected them a few times like no i did the first story with francis boyle in january 2020 which blew up but you know some people like uh, you know don't don't give credit where credit is due Uh, where's the best place uh, for people to follow
1: you and your work yeah, so I'm one of the most heavily censored. I so I just got like a letter from the U.S. Treasury, a sanctions warning, a cautionary letter. I was a subject of the of uh, the Russia collusion hoax. I was a subject, person of interest. I wasn't okay. Like I, they like people don't know. Maybe they don't know. I'm not. I'm nobody in the scheme of things. But I get in a lot of fucking trouble for a nobody. And so right now, where to find me is a Telegram at new resistance. And that's like where I'm doing things right now. Uh, Join another, you know, 19,000 people who follow my stuff on telegram. And I'm just kind of mixing right now between covering the war, explaining how these things like we talked about today kind of work within the rubric of all that stuff and, uh, and throwing back in stuff with election integrity and the things going on in the U S and the gas prices and the great reset in general. And, and then just having fun, making fun of politicians and elected the elected
0: class. Yeah. Yeah, I really enjoy your Telegram. The link will be uh, in the description. So everyone join uh, New Resistance uh, on Telegram. And again, it was a great maiden voyage with you here on Geopolitics and Empire. And I hope you join us uh, soon again. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this Geopolitics and Empire podcast. The website is geopoliticsandempire.com. And I encourage you to sign up for the free email list that goes out with each podcast and every weekend with a collection of news headlines. The newsletter and website are our last lines of defense. We're being censored and deplatformed. It's nearly impossible to find Geopolitics and Empire on the Google search engine. We've been blacklisted. YouTube frequently takes down our videos with strikes. Facebook restricts our page. Reddit and Twitter take down posts. And after the Associated Press mentioned Geopolitics and Empire in a 2021 article co-written with NATO, our Patreon account was terminated. Vimeo also terminated our Pro account. The best free way to help geopolitics and empire is to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere and subscribe to all of our media channels. You can find the video broadcast now on five platforms. Odyssey, Rockfin, Rumble, BitChute, and Brighteon. You can find the audio broadcast on the podcast ecosystem, SoundCloud, Apple, Spotify, and so on. My current favorite social media channels are Twitter and Telegram, but you can also find us on Gab, MeWe,